0: and thank you so much for joining us this evening for this very special 5x15 online event. It is great to have many hundreds of people watching for this very special evening with Professor Steven Pinker and Tim Harford, two of the world's leading science writers, and we discuss Steven's acclaimed new book, Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. It's out now and we will put the details in the chat. So our interviewer this evening is Tim Harford, he's the undercover economist, and we've been very lucky to work with him before at 5 by 15 he's a behavioral economist, a BBC radio and TV presenter, and an award winning Financial Times columnist, and he's the author of the essential book, How to Make the World Add Up, which I really highly recommend. And Steven Pinker is an experimental cognitive scientist. He's currently the Johnston Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, and he's also taught at Stanford and MIT. And he's um, he's won numerous prizes for his research, his teaching, and his 11 books, which include The Language Instinct, The Blank Slate, Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now and the new book as I mentioned is Rationality which brings us here this evening and he also has a new series on the BBC it's called Think with Pinker and it's um, on the radio and a podcast on BBC Sounds we're really looking forward to listening so we've been super excited about this very special event to have these two great minds with us to think through some of the most important issues um, facing us today in an often confusing world so it couldn't be more timely and and um, it's a it's a huge honor. So I know you'll have lots of questions, please put them in the QA box and Tim is going to come to as many as he can towards the end of this one hour session. I will disappear into the virtual wings and say a warm welcome and hand over to you, Tim.
1: Well, thank you so much, Daisy. Thanks, everyone, uh, for tuning in. Uh, thank you, particularly Stephen for uh, for giving us an hour of your, your precious time. My, my, first encounter with with Steven Pinker's ideas was when I picked up a copy of The Language Instinct about 20 years ago in a bookshop in Washington DC and, and at the time I had aspirations of my own to become a writer and I vividly remember reading this book and just thinking this is so interesting, so many ideas, so much I didn't know and it's such fun to read. It was really a, a vision of how science writing. Uh, could be, and uh, millions of people have come to the same conclusion because Stephen has written many very uh, successful books since then, and um, the most recent of which I'm just going to wave around in a gauche way. Uh, rationality, uh, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. I, I loved reading this book uh, because it it just mixes together so many of my interests as a professional nerd. So there's, there's moral philosophy, there's formal logic. Statistics, uh, behavioural science, psychology, political science—it is absolutely all there, and of course, it's uh, it's incredibly vividly um, explained and clearly uh, clearly explained. I would say actually it's worth the price of the book just for the explanation of how best fit lines uh, best fit. I, I just absolutely love that bit. However. I have to say, I'm slightly nervous about the next 55 minutes and how they're going to go down, because the very first time I I met Stephen face to face, he was the keynote speaker at a conference. And and I also spoke. And at the end of the conference, the conference organiser took the trouble in his vote of thanks to explain how he thought that my speech had been particularly unhelpful. Um, the most recent encounter I had with Stephen, he, he interviewed me and the billionaire investor Charlie Munger for his BBC podcast, Think with Pinker. Uh, he asked us to describe uh, one of our worst mistakes. Charlie Munger described his worst mistake. I described my worst mistake, at which point Charlie Munger started hooting with laughter and saying, I thought my mistake was bad, but that's really dumb. So (laughs) my conclusion is that based on um, three interactions with Steven Pinker, on two thirds of those occasions, somebody calls me an idiot and it's not (laughs) Steven. So Steven, I wanted to ask, is it logical of me? Is it rational of me? to be nervous. Thinking like a, a statistician, I, maybe I should say, well, the majority of the times we have some interaction. Someone says, someone says I'm an idiot. On the other hand, thinking logically, I can't see a, a straightforward causal reason why that should be. So I guess that <laughs> right. points to the fact there are different ways to be rational. So am I rational or irrational to be worried about this?
2: Uh, I, you're, you're irrational. Not only do we uh, approach this evening in a spirit of mutual respect and and shared uh, intellectual outlook, but we both have commented on how people's intuitive sense of coincidence and uh, uncanny um, overlap uh, is often out of whack with the actual uh, statistical processes. Namely, when things occur totally at random, it is inevitable that there will be clustering of events. So let's say that all of us uh, at uh, c- certain points in our career get called uh, idiots. If, we're, if we say anything of interest at all, someone will take offense, um, but there is no process in nature that's going to space them out. So you get called an idiot exactly every five years. Uh, it's inevitable that some of the time the, the same person will be around, or it might be the same week or the same locale, And we tend to underestimate how many opportunities there are for coincidences to occur and therefore tend to be overly impressed by coincidences when they do occur. And there are many examples. Perhaps the most famous is the birthday paradox, where if there are uh, most people, if asked, what are the odds if uh, if there are, uh, say, 30 people at a party that two will have the same birthday? Most people say oh, the odds are very small. They're greater than even. If there are 60 people in, in the party, it's uh, more than 99%. The reason that it confounds our intuitions is we think, uh, we forget that there are 366 ways for two people to have the same birthday. We tend to think, what are the odds that someone will have else will have my birthday? But of course, that's not the question. And in, in, the, in this particular uh, instance, I mean, you were... You, you notice that these unfortunate events occurred when I happened to be in the vicinity, but there were other ways in which you could have uh, uh, explained those incidents. Maybe they both occurred on Tuesdays. Maybe they both occurred in January. Uh, maybe they both occurred when an event was sponsored by uh, an August institution uh, and so on. But anyway, it is one of the chief sources of fallacies to uh, underestimate the number of possible coincidences and therefore to overestimate the significance of
1: coincidences when they do occur. Yes, almost impossible that coincidences would not occur. Uh, so the the question is to figure out where the real patterns are and and which ones are just the coincidence, which which is you know where we uh, where we rely on statisticians to help us. Um, I mean, that's just one of the ideas in the book and many many different ideas in the book. But I wanted to step back for a second and ask, do you? we've talked about a way in which people tend to be irrational um do you find it more fruitful to begin with a model of human beings as as perfectly rational and then to explore the ways in which they fall short of that perfection or is is it more useful for example to compare human beings to other primates and to marvel at just how brilliant you know how, how amazing it is that we get anything done. I mean, what what, what is a more uh, insightful way of thinking about the human condition and our our capacity for rational thought?
2: You know, it's it's a profound contrast between how you even frame the problem of human rationality, and I the and it is true that a fairly standard way of discussing human irrationality is the first of those two approaches. And this is common in in behavioral economics and and, uh, some parts of cognitive psychology. To start with a normative model, that is a model of how one ought to reason, such as expected utility theory or Bayes uh, rule or laws of probability, uh, give uh, humans a standard problem from that literature. And then uh, tip, often observed that humans fall short, often in quite uh, dramatic ways. This has been kind of the, the method of the, uh, the, the the brilliant work of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman and, and other behavioral economists. But the, and, and it has led to fantastic insights about human reasoning. The problem is that it leaves the impression that we're just a bundle of fallacies and biases and fundamental errors and uh there there are lists of them there there they're posters there are flashcards. there's a wikipedia entry that has a list of 200 human biases and fallacies and the the problem with that is not only does it i think sell our species short but it doesn't account for the fact that well someone had to come up with those laws of rationality against which we're measuring humans and it wasn't an advanced race of space aliens it was other humans you know unless you consider uh, behavioral economists and statisticians and philosophers to be some kind of advanced breed of human, they, they can think up the, the uh, ways of thinking rationally. So I think it's not, it's not the perhaps not the best way of considering human rationality. Another approach is just to, to um, say, imagine what do, what would it take to develop a artificial intelligence system that has had as much common sense as a human. And while AI has made great strides, we don't have household robots that can replace um, a, a domestic servants and, and, and maids. It would be uh, a godsend if there were, but it turns out that our everyday reasoning is just way too sophisticated to, at least so far, be duplicated in machines. And it suggests there's a lot of complexity in there that we're not appreciating. So I uh, have started... I started my book, How the Mind Works, with a, uh, the, the question, why aren't, where are the robots? Why, this, this was 25 years ago, but you can still ask the question, why, why, why don't we have a robot that could, say, understand English well enough to go out and do some errands to bring some things back from the, uh, the grocer and take in the dry cleaning? It's because we're, the human mind really is a pretty formidable system, but granted, it does uh, fall short, it can be fooled. But uh, I tend to start off with uh, the uh, a sense of, of wonder at how smart we are, uh, even with all of these shortcomings.
1: Uh, now, I, I want to come to the question of how we can be fooled I- in due course, but I, I couldn't resist. You you mentioned a race of space aliens. Um, but, I mean, there is, a, there is a, a super intelligent space alien name checked repeatedly in your book, John von Neumann. Uh, he, I mean, the joke about von Neumann was that he you know, he, he, was, he was a Martian, or so he was, a, he was a space alien, but he had studied, or possibly even a god, but he had studied human beings and was able to perfectly mimic their behaviour. Um, von Neumann, of course, among many other things... But by the way, there's a wonderful biography of von Neumann uh, just published called The Man from the Future, which if you haven't seen, I'm sure you'll, you'll want to check out. But one of the, one of the things that von Neumann um, created for us was game theory. And I originally trained as a game theorist. So I was delighted by the, by the chapter on game theory, which, in which you managed to avoid various common mistakes that people usually make when they're writing about game theory. Um, we should talk a little bit about what game theory is, but I wanted to ask whether you felt that it had, um, had slightly disappointed, slightly um, let us down, failed to, li- failed to live up to the potential that everyone was excited about in the 50s and 60s
2: yeah it um so uh, game theory and i'll i 'll try this definition you can tell me if uh if there's something wrong with it is uh, how to um uh, how to make an optimal decision when the outcome depends on other intelligent agents also making optimal decisions for them. works works for me
1: works for okay. me great de- great definition
2: and it uh it it repeatedly surprises us <clears throat> i mean the simplest uh, example would be the game of scissors, paper, rock, where um, I'm sure, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that everyone is familiar with it, is familiar enough in, in uh, Britain as well as in the United States, where the
1: optimal strategy is to so be we, as we random we as possible. We could try and play now, but I'm not sure how the Zoom delay would work, so I'll <laughs> right. we'll, we'll take, it, take it on trust that people understand the game. Yes, and
2: there, the surpri- a surprising conclusion is that uh, it, the optimal strategy is to be as random as possible. If you've got the slightest little bias toward rock or scissors, your opponent can factor that in and, and beat you over the long run. It's not that exotic. We know other situations like uh, a soccer penalty kicker and a goal uh, a goaltender. Um, uh, the optimal strategy for the kicker is to be as random as possible. Because if there's a slight tell one way or another, then the, um, uh, then the, the goalie can, can move in that way in advance. Or the, um, uh, a coordination game where if you have to meet someone and uh, both your cell phone goes dead, uh, you want to anticipate where they're likely to go. But the problem is they're anticipating where you're likely to go. And you're anticipating where they're anticipating where you're anticipating, where the optimal strategy is to go to something that's just salient, famous, well-known, even if it isn't particularly close, because it's the one that's likely to lodge in both of your consciousnesses and solve this problem of I think that he thinks that I think that he thinks. It's another counterintuitive conclusion. But perhaps the one that's most relevant to uh, the the issues that are confronting us today is various versions of uh, public goods games or tragedy of the commons or prisoner's dilemma. They're all variants of the same Uh, tragedy, which is that there are circumstances in life in which everyone doing what is optimal for themselves ends up with them all being worse off. Uh, The more classic example would be each shepherd uh, finding it to his advantage to bring his sheep onto the town commons, but when everyone does it, they could... um, denude the commons faster than it can, um, the grass can grow back. And so everyone ends up worse off. Um, the, uh, the 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 current salient example being, of course, climate change, both at the level of individuals deciding whether to conserve and nations just deciding whether to cut back uh, at the cost of their own economic development, where everyone agrees the planet's going to be much worse off if every every country continues to burn fossil fuels but no country wants to be the one that makes an outsized sacrifice uh, if it won't even improve the climate unless every other country is doing it as well. And the same same thing within uh, um, societies among individuals. The only solution being, since you, you actually can't win, is to change the rules of the game somehow.
1: Yeah, but the tragedy of the commons, I think, is a very interesting one because uh, in historical commons, people do find ways to change the rules. So, I mean, Eleanor Ostrom was the first woman to win a Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics for for studying real world commons allocation problems all around the world. And people didn't always solve these problems because they're hard problems, but but often they did. Um, Whereas, Garrett Hardin, who is the the man who coined the phrase the tragedy of the commons about the original study of it um, he he was a, a, a an ecologist who who basically formulated the problem in purely logical terms said effectively logically speaking this problem is insolvable um, logically speaking the, the commons we face today is overpopulation there's nothing we can do about overpopulation um, freedom to breed is intolerable he said he he ended up adopting all kinds of very unpleasant views, saying we shouldn't send uh, aid to Africa in a famine because, you know, that'll only make the problem worse because then you just have more of them. I mean, things that we would find absolutely appalling today. And I found it a very interesting case study of um, how the economist who studies the real world institutions comes up with one one, uh, insight, whereas somebody who views it purely as a logic problem ends up, formulating policy opinions about the world but those policy opinions are i think very ill informed and rather disturbing
2: no no I, I i couldn't agree more and in fact we're going to have to look at how um, uh, individuals often solve uh tragedies of the commons without necessarily having some kind of draconian um coercive government intervention since that's the problem we face as a planet. We don't have a world government uh, and uh, whatever solution uh, we settle into can't come from the top down. It might have to take a, a, a page out of the book of people informally solving the problems. Now, the, the obvious way to solve it be, uh, in changing the rules of the game would be if you have a Leviathan, a, uh, a taxing agent, a, uh, a punisher that punishes people for free riding, for, for stinting in contributions to the, uh, the common pot, uh, for taking more than their fair share. Uh, but the, uh, the other way to, to solve it, and this actually does change the game, and this we know from studies of the prisoner's dilemma, is that real life tends not to be a perfect tragedy of the commons or prisoner's dilemma in that it's played repeatedly. And people accumulate reputations, and there can be consequences in subsequent rounds of the game. We know from the study of the two-person version, the prisoner's dilemma, that at least one solution is that if you play a a tit-for-tat strategy, namely you um, cooperate on the first move, start out nice, but then if someone takes advantage of you, you punish them on the next move with, with a number of variations, then it is possible for both parties to uh, get into the uh, advantageous situation where everyone contributes to everyone's benefit. Uh, I think in in many of the informal cases where the multi-party prisoner's dilemma, that is a tragedy of the commons, is resolved, there are there there's reputation, there are sanctions, uh, both in terms of gossip and uh, and shaming, uh, sometimes a little bit of mild vandalism if if uh, one lobster fisherman has. Um, more lobster pots out there than the community thinks is, is fair, Then he might find them um, uh, cut loose from, from their moorings or um, there are other ways of, of giving you know, subtle messages. And in communities where all of the players know each other and they have to work together over the, the long term, these regimes of gossip, reputation, mild, mild punishment can, can, can do the trick without a government uh, saying, uh, having limits or caps and trades or, or pricing and so on. At the global level, we're, 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 we're kind of living out that experiment because without a leviathan that can impose a, say, global carbon tax, that would be one way out of, out of the uh, dilemma. We're kind of relying on reputation and gossip and, and then you know, subtle forms of vandalism to try, where countries try to shame each other, saying, okay, well, if you are going to, um uh, pollute the commons then next time you come to us asking for a favor don't expect us to uh, come, come to your assistance uh, it's given us paris it's given us uh, glasgow which are not sufficient to solve the problem but at least are, are a start
1: yeah, absolutely now I, I really want to spend the next um the next 35 minutes nerding out as to whether tat for tit is a better <laughs> response to the prisoner's dilemma than tit for tat but but we, no, nobody else will want to hear that. They'll or want or hear... Tip, tip for two
2: tats, or uh, yeah, yes. there's,
1: there's, it's, um, oh, there are some deep cuts that we, we we could take, but we probably shouldn't. Um, I wanted to to change topics a bit, and I hope people will forgive us for jumping around. But the the book is, as I say, there's a there's a, there's a chapter on game theory, there's a chapter on statistics, there's chapters on logic, moral philosophy, so many. Different ideas in the book that the, the Q and A will necessarily jump around a bit, but I, I wanted to ask about um, the topic that you you address really quite late in the book, um, which is why people fall for misinformation. Why why people so frustratingly or seem to be so frustratingly dumb sometimes? And um, I mean, one could formulate uh, that there, there are three possible reasons why people fall for misinformation in today's information environment. Um, one is that they they can't figure out the truth. They they just don't, they don't have the the intelligence, they don't have the the education, they don't have the cognitive tools. The world's a complicated place. People just can't do it. Second theory is that um, people just don't want to know the truth because of um, political polarization. You you, uh, use the phrase my side bias uh, in, in your writing. Just this idea of look, we're out to win, Uh, I'm out to make friends with people who like me, I'm out to shame people who disagree with me, we're not out here for the truth, we're out here for victory. So, you know, theory one, people can't find, can't figure out the truth, theory two, people don't want to know the truth because they're in a political fight. Um, So hypothesis three is people can figure out the truth and they want to figure out the truth, but they're just kind of busy, distracted, um, they're not thinking about whether things are true. They're thinking about whether they're funny or interesting. Um, and if we could just get people to focus a little bit and slow down, that would make all the difference. Of course, all of these three hypotheses could be true at once. Do um, you have a sense of where the, which one's doing most of the work, where we need to focus our efforts if we're going to improve the information environment?
2: Yeah, I think all, I suspect all three are true. Um, and they may apply to different kinds of, of uh, commonly held false beliefs they 're the ones that are can be traced to human intuition as opposed to our best the best tools available such as the fear of plane travel uh, as opposed to car travel or the fear of terrorism as opposed to day to day homicides where we have a, a good sense that that uh, our intuitive sense of probability is driven by available anecdotes. And, you know, I confess I'm as as susceptible to that as anyone. If if I'm the first thought when I'm considering some particular hazard, like, uh, is there a danger of, uh, uh, you know, becoming paralyzed if I fall off a ladder? First thing is, oh, gee, can I think of anyone I know who's fallen off a ladder who's become paralyzed and, you know, oh, oh, that happened to an uncle of mine. This is really dangerous or, or, or not. Now, I know that that is just not the way to do it. It's to go to the best available data. The governments keep very excellent statistics on that kind of thing. But the first impression is to rack uh, your memory, for example. So that's, that's a case of maybe a combination of can't do it or, or, or too much work to do it. But then I don't know if that explanation is going to work for why so many Americans believe that there is a cabal of cannibalistic um, Satan worshiping pedophiles embedded in, in Hollywood and, and, and the Washington deep state that does involve a little bit, you know, it, that does involve some active work to come up with a theory like that or to, to accept it. And I don't think there's a simple cognitive bias. There are clearly the, the, my side biases at work because those, Examples of conspiracy theories and fake news almost always have a villain. Sometimes the villain is diffuse. Sometimes, namely, the institutions, the the, the, the powerful, the the, uh, the government, or or even a cabal of government and bankers and, and intellectuals. Uh, and uh, there, I think it is held for the um, the entertainment value, the um, sense of solidarity. The fact that the person who um, spreads these uh, the, these rumors will have uh, a reputational uh, benefit, uh, and that just the fact that it that it, it, it emboldens our sense that the, the person's sense of uh, what makes life meaningful, what is worth fighting for, what are the what are the what are the sides at, at play. Now, a lot of us are appalled, at least at the at the possibility that people would actually change their factual beliefs to fit in with some moralistic agenda, you'd think that it would be the other way around. You have an objective assessment of the world and you decide what your political and moral commitments are, but psychologically it doesn't always work that way, uh, to to put it mildly. And when it comes to beliefs about a lot of things, about the deep past, about distant places, about enclosed um, uh, centers of power, Mythology works for people as well as, or better than verifiable fact, probably because for most of our history, you couldn't get at the verifiable facts anyway, and it was just one narrative against
1: another. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, so I just suggest that there's there's a a particular strategy or tactic we should be taking to try to reduce the spread of misinformation is this just a you know a thousand pronged effort, or is there one fundamental thing that we should do tomorrow that would make things better? Well,
2: this isn't a single thing; it's more of a direction and probably a family of things. But because we we all like to be entertained, we like our myths sometimes, uh, and 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 we carve out zones of mythology that are separate from our day to day lives. Even people who believe. In nutty theories like that, jet contrails are, are actually mind-dispersing drugs secretly dispensed by a by a government program. I, I wager that most of them hold jobs. They they keep food in the fridge. They get the kids clothed and fed and off to school on time. So it's not like they're they're addled. They're they're, they're addle-minded. Yeah. Uh just there I'm are a zones. Most- of
1: which- I've not encountered many people, for example, who think that ice cream makes laptops work better, but Apple is (laughs) suppressing this information because they want to sell you more upgrades because you just disprove this very, very quickly. Just spoon the ice cream in and your laptop, you know, it's not going to survive contact with reality. But some of these other theories, they they are, as you say, they're kind of, they're they're walled off. So the, the way that
2: we, those of us who are resistant to those, theories, uh, just have enough of a, we're plugged in enough to inst- mainstream institutions to know that that just couldn't happen. You couldn't keep that kind of secret. That, I mean, we have contact with, uh, with, with, with newspapers, with universities, with government agencies. If we don't work for them, we know people that do. We're kind of part of that network. We just have a sense of how it works and how it genuinely is more trustworthy than some guy on, on uh, Twitter or a supermarket tabloid. But it is those institutions that safeguard all of us from tempting misinformation, those institutions with their editing and fact-checking and reputation for accuracy and error correction mechanisms, be it peer review or uh, editors and and fact-checkers or uh, checks and balances, um, uh, founding um, charters or principles that commit them to objectivity. So what we really need to do is strengthen those institutions uh, not just give them more power but have make it so that they can make their case for credibility partly by showing their work sh- showing how they uh, they are just a rival priesthood they're not oracles uh, but rather that they employ, methods of getting at and preserving the truth, such as experimentation, such as a community where if one person makes a mistake, another one can point it out and in fact gains prestige from pointing out the first one's mistake. A a reputation for political neutrality. And I think a lot of our institutions have fallen short. They really do uh, present themselves as oracles. This This is what one has to do. And inevitably they'll get some things wrong because we're, all, we're only human and even the best of our institutions like, like uh, science and mainstream journalism uh, mess up. That can sap all credibility unless people are made aware that it's the rules of the game. So the, the, the rules of engagement that they play that uh, earn them uh, what credibility they have. And so I think we, uh, we should all show our work uh, explain conclusions and recommendations as best as possible w- when we can. Admit mistakes, uh, all of which would secure the credibility of institutions as opposed to individual intuitions.
1: So I I, I want to agree with you on this. I, I, I mean, it sounds right, and I'm all in favor of more transparency and and more accountability. And if if organisations want to be trusted, then they need to demonstrate that they are trustworthy, it's, it's partly on them. Um, I agree with all of this, but uh, it seems to me that many institutions are more transparent than they've ever been. And yet trust seems to be lower than it's ever been. Yeah. Am, I, am I wrong?
2: I—I—I um, I, I No, I'm not gonna say you're wrong. Um, it, it is a mixed bag because I think we've seen during the uh, COVID pandemic when a lot of institutions had to kind of th- think on their feet and it it felt a lot like we were that they were just delivering pronouncements without um uh, enough of a rationale at least i think that was a common perception but you're right that we are that the, the problem in my generic recommendation is that uh that that the um the trust in institutions has gone down since its its high water mark in the early 1960s all institutions um journalism perhaps being the, the hardest hit and government second, or I think they're, they're neck and neck. And, and it is true that governments are more transparent than in an era that, uh, in which they were trusted. It, it may be that I'm wrong and that, that greater transparency only exposes the, the, the flaws, shows how the sausage is made and that saps trust. Uh, but uh, it would be a good thing for someone to investigate in great, greater depth because I think we don't know the answer to the question and, um, and we should.
1: Now, I wanted to ask um, just to remind people that they can send their questions in. I see there are some questions coming in, and I'll I'll put as many as I can to Stephen, but um but it's it's my prerogative to ask a couple more before I do that. Um w- there was one observation that really caught my attention in the book, Stephen, where you, uh, you you talk about three um similar fallacies. Uh the the effective fallacy and the ad hominem fallacy and the genetic fallacy all of which are basically um, disagreeing with an idea because of who is putting the idea forward or of, you know, that the the intellectual history behind the idea or that idea sometimes goes hand in hand with certain other things. So to pick the most cliched example, and you don't, in fact, pick the cliched example, but I'll pick it, you know, (laughs) vegetarianism, You know, Hitler was a vegetarian. We can't be we can't be having anything to do with vegetarianism, given its Nazi history. And obviously, that's absurd. Obviously, nobody thinks that that could possibly ever be an argument against vegetarianism. Um, You say, and I am inclined to agree with you, that you think these fallacies are becoming more common. They used to be just embarrassing. These are sort of basic, basic errors, logic professors used to explain these fallacies and, and no, no one serious could get away with them. And now you argue that actually serious people do get away with them and they've become very common. Um, so what's that sounds right, but do you have any evidence for that? Or is that just an impression? And what? why do you think it's happening if it is happening?
2: Yeah, but grant, granted that it's an impression. So ideally, if I were to be consistent with my own principles, I would... Uh, um, go out and do a study to measure the number of ad hominem errors and uh, uh, guilt by association fallacies uh, in, say, some constant uh, source like the New York Times or the Guardian. Um, So granted, maybe this is just a, a mistaken impression driven by anecdotes, but there are things that I see, for example, in the New York Times in the last four years that would have been pretty much unheard of beforehand. So I have a lot of confidence. For example, a, a book review that calls attention to the race and age and gender of the author, if it is a, um, older white male, uh, that I, I don't think you would have seen even 10 years ago. Say Jared Diamond writes, writes a, uh, a book and he's, um, uh, and the, the reviewer in the New York Times says, well, here, another, uh, you know, old white male, uh, what do you expect? Uh, so, uh, but granted, maybe that's an anecdote, but I, 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 t- I don't think so. I think it's because the mission, since um, objectivity and rationality come from institutions that dedicate themselves to, um, to to those very goals and that try to implement rules such as fact-checking and peer review in service of those goals, we have seen a number of institutions such as universities, and I, I dare say some major publications that believe that their, their first goal is social justice, not, not the search for truth. And in fact, you can have, you see statements to that effect coming out of, out of universities. And as Jonathan Haidt has pointed out that those really are not completely compatible, that, um, uh, that, that if you're looking for social justice defined as, uh, uh reversing, uh, unequal outcomes between larger demographic groups, such as uh, races, sexes, and ages, then um, that, that is not the same thing as trying to develop the most objective understanding of reality, the, you, you can't have, that those are two incompatible uh, telos, as he puts it. So I think that's what has, uh, what has happened. And I, uh, I don't know, by the way, I, I can't help but mention, I don't know if you have fact-checked the Hitler was a vegetarian
1: claim uh, but, no, no, I would have fact checked it if I'd written it, but not, but as, I, a, no, I, not, I, not as a top of mind thing. So is it not true? It, it, so, yes. Yeah, so I did throw that out
2: in one of my books and a reader directed me to a source that as it as it happens, this does not subvert your, your point. But Hitler was not a vegetarian. It turns out and he would and he would scarf sausages by the by, by the by the dozen. Uh, but he wanted to convey the impression that he was a kind of fascist Gandhi. That he was like many holy figures, uh, being something of an ascetic, gives you something of a moral aura, and so he uh, he spread that propaganda. But another example, by the way, he
1: pretended to be a vegetarian. That's fascinating.
2: Vegetarian, yes. In private, he would gorge on uh, on sausages. Um, But uh, but your point is valid. And perhaps another example in the same vein is that the uh, the Nazis really did were the first to discover the link between tobacco, smoke, and cancer. And the tobacco companies made much of that fact when they were trying to downplay the link between uh, smoking and cancer by saying, oh, that that was Nazi science. Now it turns out it was Nazi science. It also happened to be correct. But yeah. the fallacies of the genetic fallacy, which by the way, just to clarify, uh, does not have any doesn't does not refer to DNA, but rather to genesis, namely, the, it's tainting a belief based on its origin. Um, uh, that would be an excellent illustration of why the genetic fallacy is a fallacy, namely, even the Nazis were factually correct about some things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I remember discussing the, uh, the Nazi research on smoking in my own book, How to Make the World Add Up. And yes, it, it wasn't they they nailed it. Um, and that really wasn't helpful with, with enemies like that. Who needs friends? Uh, so yeah, it was a it was a big problem. Um, so uh, I'm going to invite people once more to send in some questions. I'm I see questions are coming in already. Oh, loads of cool questions are coming in. So I'm going to do, I'm going to fiddle in a second with my phone, which has the questions coming in to me. But before I do, um, I just wanted to ask you to go through. A, a, uh, a sort of logical or statistical fallacy that I had not encountered, which delighted me, uh, which was the, the collider fallacy. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so this, you know, this idea of, you know, um, well, you give an example of the collider fallacy. I, 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 it was a new one on me and I enjoyed it.
2: So I think the term comes from the artificial intelligence researcher, Judea Pearl, who's considered one of the uh, deepest thinkers on causality and the collision in a question is when there are two causes and, uh, uh, one impinging on one effect, um, and so let's take a, just a simple example of uh, uh, there, there are two things that can make the, the streets wet: um, either um, rain rainfall or a street cleaner. Uh, if you were to and, and so if, if you observe that the street is wet, it could have either of those causes. If you then pick only those days in which the streets are wet you'll find that there's a negative correlation between rainfall and street sweeping. Uh, now, in that case, there's a, there would be an, a lot, uh, an obvious um, causal explanation Maybe you don't send the street sweepers out the, uh, w- w- when, it, when it's already raining. But let's say even sprinklers would be another example where maybe even if you don't turn off the sprinkler, uh, and, and so they really are independent. It will there'll be a spurious negative correlation if you only select those days in which the uh, outcome is as it is. Now that that sounds abstract, but it turns out there are many many examples. And one would be the claim, for example, that um, standardized tests don't uh, predict um, uh, success in graduate school. That is the claim. It turns out to be false, and it was. The support for it was based on the collider fallacy, which is that among uh, successful graduate students, uh, there is no particular correlation with, uh, with high test scores. The problem being that to make it into graduate school, if your test scores weren't so good, something else might have must have compensated or they wouldn't have admitted you in the first place. And so you're looking at just those people who have something like an amazing discovery or or, or great grades that compensated for the uh, the, the, uh, lower test scores. Maybe I'll give an even even simpler example and more of an every less nerdy example. Uh, Many women um, think that um, uh, good looking men are jerks. Uh, They've observed this correlation but that too might be an example of a collider fallacy. If a woman will only date a man, if either he has good looks or some other virtue, then among that subset of men that she dates, there will be a negative correlation between looks and, and say, character, because uh, if they didn't have good looks, they must have had good character or she wouldn't have dated them in the first place. Or, or of course, men judging women as
1: well. Uh, Yes, I, I'm reminded by uh, of my uh, my wife's mother advising her uh, that she shouldn't take too much notice of of how men dress. It's okay to to date a guy who was who was a pretty sloppy dresser, and then after after a few years of of not much success in the dating market, my wife's mother then updated her information and said, actually, you shouldn't really pay any attention to looks at all. Um, they're overrated. Uh, you know, just go for any guy really no matter how hideous he might be shortly <laughs> after that uh we started dating and the rest is history so you know this is <laughs> quite sure what the lesson is but um anyway all is well uh we should we should go to some uh questions from uh people who've tuned in lots and lots of good questions coming in and um so so one from um one from uh rosie rosie lyden uh she asks uh People uh, these days seem to be more polarized, being much more likely to mix with people sharing their own uh, viewpoint. Uh, Doesn't this encourage a lack of rationality because people want to be part of the group and to share the group's opinions? Oh, very
2: much so. And that is, the the polarization is not anecdotal. That is that public opinion surveys, at least in the United States, I I suspect in, in Britain, although I don't know for sure, Show an increased negative polarization; that is, that uh, people are um, uh, have much stronger condemnation of the other political part members of the other political party than, than that was true, say, 20 years ago. And uh, I'm I'm glad that you me- you mentioned residential segregation and professional segregation as a plausible explanation, namely, increasingly educated professionals are congregating in cities and university towns and less educated people in remote suburbs and, and the countryside. Institutions that used to bridge different uh, demographics such as the, uh, the, the the church and service organizations are declining in popularity. Uh, and this may be a contributor to the polarization. Um, the reason I'm glad you mentioned it is that you didn't mention the today's scapegoat for everything, namely social media. Now, social media might be exacerbating it as well, but I don't think, I I tend to think it wasn't the the first cause. And, And it is indeed a problem that a lot of the widespread examples of science denial, irrationality, probably do not come from scientific illiteracy or a lack of education, because surveys have repeatedly shown that people who hold who, de- who defy scientific consensus on issues such as climate change, actually don't know any less science than the people who believe it. The people who believe it often have um, uh, wacky reasons. They, a lot of people who believe in climate change think that it has something to do with the ozone hole or plastic straws in the ocean. Uh, it's simply a, um, uh, a property of political orientation. The farther you are to the right, the more you deny climate change. So indeed, and and there are other issues like that. So I do think it is pernicious. Uh,
1: Absolutely. And and a point I make in my book is that the climate is going to do what it's going to do, regardless of my opinion or your opinion. I mean, if if you're Joe Biden or Xi Jinping, then maybe you can influence the climate, but an individual can't. Um, And so in a way, you have a, a free hand to believe anything you want. And your beliefs on the climate are really going to affect who will be friends with you. And if you live in Brighton in the southeast of England, you'd better believe climate change is a huge issue. Or indeed, in North Oxford, you'd better believe, as I live, you'd better believe climate change is a huge issue. Um, in, uh, and is I think it is a huge issue. But if I lived in, uh, say, Iowa, uh, the social pressures to believe something totally different uh, are, are radically different. And I suppose we this gets to the Mercier and Sperber point. You, 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 cite their work in your book that did we, did we evolve rationality to solve problems or did we evolve rationality to, you know, win friends in arguments? And if rationality is all about kind of group bonding and, you know, demonstrating that you're part of it, part of the right team, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that we, we get a lot of the big questions wrong.
2: Yeah. And, uh, it's, um, to refer to our earlier part in the conversation, it's also been called The Tragedy of the Rationality Commons by legal scholar Daniel Kahan, that what is good for each individual, namely gaining the greatest esteem within your social clique for being a an intrepid warrior for the cause, uh, is works out to the detriment of all of us if you simply have warring uh, ideological co- coalitions rather than a shared commitment to find, to, uh, find, find the truth. Uh, so yes, and I, I think that uh, Sperber and Mercier maybe go a bit too far in saying that's just the only thing that rationality evolved for, but there, because there also has to be some ag- alignment with reality. And, and indeed, the fact that we've transformed the planet suggests that we're pretty good at figuring out how the, the objective world works as well. But there is an enormous tendency to deploy our rationality to win arguments as opposed to getting to the truth. So, a
1: very interesting question from Donald Bryden. Uh, he asks he says we start children's lives by insisting that misinformation is true santa claus tooth fairies bogeymen now donald i'm gonna to have to correct you for a moment, donald because uh, santa claus is real <coughs> however rudolph the red-nosed reindeer that, that's a myth he was invented by a advertising copywriter to make you know ostracized children feel a little bit better about themselves so anyway so rudolph tooth fairies bogeymen all untrue uh, and donald asks could starting off children by feeding them all this misinformation, could that be impacting the reaction of adults to false narratives? Um, I, I suspect
2: not, just because I think people can, people do compartmentalize, and I think people do sense that there are charming childhood stories that are, are meant to be out, outgrown. I mean, again, we could Someone could do the study to see if children, all all else being equal, children who uh, are exposed to these stories are more credulous uh, as adults. My own hunch is not that we're much more, and this is part of actually a larger belief that that I think that parenting is overrated when it comes to shaping the the child, that people are much more sensitive to their uh, peer group than than to their parents.
1: Several people have written with variants of the same question, which is basically... Um, can irrationality help you make a better decision? Uh, and if it can, uh, what are the sort of circumstances where being irrational might help you make a better decision? Well,
2: there certainly, uh, there certainly are a number of cases, going back to game theory, in which being um, irrational, being impervious to uh, reason, being... Um, ignorant of information, being out of control, can give you a paradoxical advantage. The family is called paradoxical tactics and was, uh, they were illuminated by Thomas Schelling um, 60 years ago. Uh, that is, when you're, when you're, uh, if you're irrational, then no one can make you an offer you can't refuse. Uh, that is your, your rationality can't be manipulated against you to accept something that is in your interests, but, but, uh, even in someone else's interests, even more. So for example, let's say you're bargaining, uh, over the price of a car. Um, if, uh, the, the salesman makes you a, an offer that is, um, offers to sell you the car for, um, less than you're willing to, to, uh, pay for it, but, um, uh, and, and more than he's uh, uh, than it's in your interest to take it. But if you are insulted by the offer, uh, if you go into a rage because uh, you think that it is, it is uh, too high, then um, the, uh, since the salesman doesn't want to walk away from the deal, he has no choice but to uh, concede to your hotheadedness and meet you on your terms. And there are other terms, such a, uh, examples such as the game of chicken where two teenagers approach each other on high speed on a narrow road and the first to swerve loses face where the winner, winner is the one who locks a steering wheel and puts a brick on the gas pedal and climbs into the back seat because then leaves the other guy no choice but to swerve as long, of, of course, as he doesn't do it at the, at the same time. So there are these, uh, and some of these have been played out in drama such as in Dr. Strangelove. Again, strange counterintuitive conclusions from the game theoretic situations in which the best thing to do depends on what the other person does. Uh, uh, however, the um, even there, there are disadvantages to playing a, a madman strategy because the other side could just decide, walk away and just decide not to deal with a madman uh, or to just take you out because you yourself are impervious uh, to, to uh, reason. In terms of more... Uh, familiar situations in in everyday life, there are probably cases where we have no choice but to fall back on intuition, where intuition probably means the probabilistic weighting of many, many, many slightly informative hints or clues that might outperform uh, some kind of step-by-step deduction from first principles. Should you like someone? Should you go into a venture? Sometimes there are just too many factors to enumerate. You don't have the data, it would take you too long and an intuitive sense might be the best uh, that that you can do. I think that's the way artificial intelligence deep learning systems work. They combine, um, well in their their case, millions or tens of millions of bits of information. uh, And that might be what we mean when we say using intuition instead of overt reasoning.
1: Uh, thank you. So uh, I'm overwhelmed now with good questions, but uh, th- this one, I think I may, I may be able to guess at your answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, because I, I am intrigued. Are different generations more liable to have irrational be- beliefs and behaviours?
2: You know, I think over time, there are lots of irrational beliefs that, would, that at least the mainstream has divested itself off. I mean, over millennia, uh, there are examples like Um, uh, human sacrifice, the idea that if you want to bring about better weather weather or success in the battlefield, you find a a virgin and throw her into a volcano. All the ancient civilizations practiced it, and uh, they all abandoned them. Um, Chattel slavery, um, looking for omens in eclipses and uh, rainbows and other natural signs or or, uh, animal entrails, Um, uh, uh, um, intercessory prayer, exorcism, uh, cupping as a means of curing disease, bloodletting. There's no shortage of superstitions that to a large extent we have outgrown over the long-term. On the other hand, there are still Plenty of paranormal beliefs, as best I could tell from seventy years of data, belief in astrology has not changed belief in in uh, haunted houses in ESPs has seemed to be more or less constant. we don 't see a, to my disappointment a generational turnover. I expected younger generations to be less credulous in general, there is a life cycle effect, namely as you get older, you tend to be less credulous about Um, paranormal beliefs. You outgrow your belief in ESP and healing crystals and so on, but not a generational effect in the sense that younger generation, that young generations today are more skeptical than young generations, say 50 years ago.
1: I suppose another observation is that generations tend to agree with each other. There are certain beliefs that an entire cohort will share and um, which may seem irrational to a different cohort. And this is why it's still a good idea to get together for Thanksgiving so you can learn from your elders and learn from your younger's. Um, we've got, oh gosh, we've got three more minutes. Um, so I'm gonna ask a very, very easy question. Uh, and I'm afraid it'll have to be the last one and I apologize to everybody who, who uh, I haven't managed to get to. Um, it's from Bruce Law. He asks, will AGI, uh, by which I assume he means artificial general intelligence, will artificial and general intelligence necessarily be fully rational? Um,
2: well, if it is designed in a uh, competitive environment and it engages in negotiation, strategy, tactics, bluffing against maybe other AGIs or for, against humans in some nightmare scenarios, then, then maybe not for the reason that in situations of bargaining, threats, and promises, sometimes there's a paradoxical advantage to being irrational.
1: There we go, short and sweet. Big, big question, lots of great questions. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book. We've barely scratched the surface. Uh, rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, why it matters, a perfect Christmas present for yourself or write a letter to Santa Claus who does exist and maybe he will bring you one. Um, Stephen, uh, thank you on behalf of everybody and, and, and on behalf of me for making my life so easy. Thank you so much for joining us. And let me thank everyone for tuning in and hand back to Daisy.
0: Tim, thank you also so much for this incredible conversation. And Stephen, thank you for making this possible for us. We are your hugest fans and we're so grateful. Rationality, as Tim said, is out now. And I know that and Books will be delighted to help if, if you will order with them. Um, there's so much at stake right now in understanding the world around us and the vast amounts of information, um, so much fast paced um, so we're just so grateful that we have you as a guide to helping us through it all. And we hope that we will see you again, Stephen. And for now, thanks for all your questions from the audience. But for now, it's good night from us and we will see you again soon.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's been an honour. Thanks very much.